Welcome, everybody, on this cold and, well, not terribly snowy Saturday morning in Greeley, Colorado. It is 10.02 in the morning on this February 18th, 2012. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, the host of this program, Dave's Gone By, which has been airing for nine and a half years, first in New York and now uh, in Colorado, but, of course, all over the place, on the web at uncradio.com. For more information about the show, please visit davesgoneby.com or get your name on the weekly mailer list at davesgoneby at aol.com so that you can know that we're doing programs as incredible as and special as the one you are about to enjoy. We have three hours with you from 10 to 1 on this Saturday, and huh, I cannot believe... What an amazing show. I mean, every host says these kinds of things. It's like, oh, we have an amazing show for you. We have a great show. Well, let me tell you something. You know, not only will we be talking to my dad for his upcoming 75th birthday. Okay, I realize that's exciting for me. Maybe not for you. But we got my dad. We'll be going inside Broadway for some Broadway news. And also, I'll be talking about the show that they just did here at UNC, the... uh, Brian Friel play Dancing at Lunasa. We'll be playing some Bob Dylan music, as we always do in our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment. Rabbi Saul Solomon will be stopping in to talk about his show that is coming to New York. And we'll be talking to Broadway Tony-winning actress Alice Ripley. If, if that weren't enough for one of the most major shows that we've ever done on this program, let me tell you, our first guest on the show is a legendary vocalist, songwriter, singer, and, um, I mean, what, what is there to say about our first guest, except, well, let's see, she is a, a, an alumnus of the University of Colorado, not this university, the, uh, the University of Colorado, not Northern, oh well. Um, Bill Clinton was inspired to name his daughter Chelsea after her version of the Joni Mitchell song, Chelsea Morning. Uh, She's got an honorary doctorate from the Pratt Institute, and she is a Grammy winner um, for for both sides now. And um, 
Well, I mean, you probably know dozens of her songs, as I do, and we'll be playing a few as well. But before we play some Judy Collins songs, let's talk to Judy Collins, because she is on the phone with us. Judy, are you there? I'm here. Judy, welcome. Welcome to the neighborhood, and thank you. First of all, ever so much for, for calling into the show. And I uh, wanted to, to just say how great it is also to have a Colorado win. Well, you weren't born in Colorado, but you've spent a good chunk of, of your life here, haven't you? No, I was born in Seattle, but moved to Colorado when I was nine. So I really consider myself almost a native Coloradoan. I live in New York now, but I spend a lot of time here, and I'm in Colorado at the moment, up in Vail. Up in Vail, and also you'll be playing at um, in Boulder on February 25th, which is the reason... I'll be in Boulder, I'll be in Telluride next weekend, I'll be in Grand Junction next weekend, So, and I was at, <clears throat> last night I was in Aspen at the Wheeler Opera House, so this is a Colorado singing and uh, R&R trip. Well, are you... Do you love it every time you come back to college? Do you still have family here and friends and all that? Oh, yes, I do, and I do love it a lot. I wanted to add to my Pratt doctorate. I have, I'm a doctor, I'm an honorary doctor four times, and one of them is Pratt. One of them is the New School of Social Research University in New York, which I'm very proud of, because when I first moved to call, to New York in 1963, I, uh, one of the first things I did was to take a Russian course down at the New School and go to see Krishnamurti at the New School. And so I was honored when they called me a few years ago to give me an honorary doctorate. It was my first. So those are always important. Wow. Well, actually, you should probably at some point record Dylan's Day of the Locust if you haven't already. Since you've, you've stepped I haven't, the- but I'm sure I'll get to it. Life is long. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and we should tell everybody, aside from the fact that you'll be playing all these concerts in Colorado, you do have a new album out called Bohemian, and we'll be playing a, a track or two from that. Um, and I guess that, well, yeah, I mean. And I have a new book out, you know, called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which is, um, I wanted to call it Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and the Music That Changed a Generation. But it does use the title of the song that Stephen Stills wrote for me in 1968. And it also is an insight, I hope, on on the music business as well as on uh, one of the lives of the music business that's still around. Which would be you, thank God. And and it's kind of nice that you're you're writing a memoir that is at least, I assume this one is a lot more joyful and content and happy than some of the, the memoirs you've had to write in the past Years. Well, one has to do what one has to do at the moment it's required, and uh, I just take dictation, as some of us say. <laughs> In other words, the spirit comes to you and, and you know, it just flows out of you. Is, is it different or difficult writing books as opposed to songs? No, it's, it's natural. Um, I, I have worked very hard to be able to say that, and to do that, but it is what I do. So I write, I sing, I play the piano, I practice, I work in my journal, I listen to music. It's all part of the fabric of the life I lead. Well, speaking of, you know, there are so many different questions I wanted to ask you, and each time you, you answer a question, it leads to another one. So I guess, um, listen to music. What's playing on your iPod or your CD player these days? Who are you listening to? Last night, as I was driving from Aspen, which I mentioned on my Facebook page because I was so thrilled, I was listening to Adele's song, Rolling the Deep, which I'm crazy about. I'm crazy about Adele. (laughs) 
and listening to Leonard Cohen's new album, Old Ideas, which is so brilliant, beyond brilliant. There are a lot of other things on my iPod and my computer and my telephone, but those were the things that were up for me today. Well, can, can I ask what you think? Of, well, and, and by the way, if people don't know, you, you even have a full album of Leonard Cohen songs that you have done, as well as uh, an album of um, Dylan songs and Lena McCartney songs. But um, oh, and there I go. I, I just lost the question <laughs> I was about to ask. Oh yes, the, the whole change, the sea change in the music industry. How has that affected you from, say, the days at Elektra and then CBS when you put out an album, you tour, and that's how it was done? How do you feel it's different now, better or worse, or both? It's it's very much the same in one respect, and that is that you're always thinking to write the greatest song that you've ever written and to find the song that will move you to record it. You're looking for ways to sustain what you do to make it better, to sharpen it, to get better and better. I mean, that's what it's all about. I've been doing this for, being paid for it for 51 years. And to sustain yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually and keep up to the mark about where you want to go to keep connected to to your creative sources and to do the things that make you feel good and make you able to do the work, that's not changed. Some of the avenues are different. Some of the, I mean, Hmm. you know, the Grammys was a big fancy to-do with a lot of things that I didn't like and some that I did, but that, that too hasn't really changed. There's a lot more of it sometimes, but fundamentally it's about the song. You know, I was um, very impressed this year with, with Chris Brown. I don't know a thing about Chris Brown. But I liked his athleticism, I liked his musicality, and I loved his song. I thought, well, that's a very talented writer. It's all about, for me, finding, listening to, being inspired by, and pursuing a life in music. And, and so I take note of, I try to take note of what goes on. That's, that's great. And can I ask, um, having, as you said, 51 paid years in the music business and have you found that it is more difficult now to for you to tour physically and emotionally or is it the same do you have you slowed down do you take lessons do you do you do voice work what do you do i don't i've had some i've had wonderful training so i know how to do what i do which is a godsend hmm. i also know how to travel which i've learned over these years i've never I've never retired, so I can't make a comeback. I, uh, I've gotten better, I think, at what I do. And also, I do love what I do. So as far as I'm concerned, I treat the airports like gymnasiums and enjoy them. Okay. I mean, how, how many days or weeks a year do you spend traveling? I'm out about 100. Last year, I was out 120 days. Wow. And you don't see that lessening in the next few years. I mean, hopefully, you'll, you'll still be very no, much... No, I don't see it lessening in, in any... In any in any appreciable manner, I mean, it, first of all, you're I, I'm I'm wanted in more places than I ever was. So I travel even more than I did. Of course, obviously, I'm doing 120 shows a year, and I might have done, let's say, 60 10 years ago. So that's altered, hmm. but it's still the same thing. I mean, I find that audiences of all sizes and all shapes and all all um, localities are great and I 
enjoy the journey, as they say. Well, I think that's great. That's what it's, it's obviously completely all about. So let's, if you don't mind, roll it back a little bit to the beginning stages of your realizing that you could sing. Was it from from hearing your early recordings on like So Early in the Spring and and records like that and you know Maids and Golden Apples? Was was say Ronnie Gilbert like your kind of idol or something, or how did you pattern your singing style after? Well, I didn't pattern my singing after anybody. I was raised in a musical family. My dad was a great singer. He sang not only Rodgers and Hart, but he sang all the Irish uh, songs, the classic Danny Boy and Carrie Dancers. And uh, so, and I had a wonderful musical background. I played the piano seriously, and but also I sang in Jack Blue's dance band. And when I picked up a guitar at 14... I was I considered myself not particularly a singer but certainly a storyteller and it wasn't until three or four albums in that I was able to kind of glom on to the idea of figuring out how to sing I knew what I wanted to say and I knew the songs that I wanted to sing which I was choosing and there were many people that I listened to and loved but my models really were I don't know, people like my dad who knew how to tell a story and make it make the lyric understandable. And, uh, of course, I listened to everybody from Bob Gibson and Josh White and worked a lot with the Smother bro- Smothers huh. Brothers in Colorado and uh, and Sonny Terry and, Ronnie, Ronnie, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and got to New York and opened at Gertie Soak City in 1961 in February. And guess who was my opening act? Wait, wait. Arlo Nin- Guthrie was 13, and he, <laughs> everybody in New York was there, and I thought they came to see me, but they wanted to see just how Woody's kid was doing. And um, so there were a lot of people whose music I loved, but I did not pattern myself, as you say, after any of them. Oh, okay, no, I was just thinking maybe the Weebers, because they, they sort of put out a style that was very forward, or, or certainly um, Ronnie Gilbert did, of, of singing from the chest and forward and really, like, Powerful. It wasn't like sweet operetta singing. And certainly in your early recordings, um, some of them, you had that folky kind of powerful, I wouldn't call it a belt, but I think, yeah, I imagine you know them. I'm well, saying, you know who yeah. it was. It was Judy Collins singing the songs that she chose. Well, that's fine. That That's great. Can I ask? And actually, yeah. through those years, you know, I think that the choice of material and the lyrics are so important. The whole point is how to get the story across, how to phrase, how to be clear, how to... And by the way, that is actually the secret of singing. Um, a lot of those people that you're talking about don't don't sing anymore or can't sing anymore. And one of the things that I was very lucky about was that I met in 1965 when I was losing my voice and literally falling apart because of all the traveling. I found a great teacher who knew what to do. Hmm. and what to say and for 32 years I studied with him so that was really the foundation of keeping the instrument in shape which is the whole point yeah it's great to have all the songs and to write the songs and to sing and some people seem to have a natural knack at it certainly Woody did but uh, for most of us who are human it takes another kind of uh, inspiration to figure out the mechanics of how to keep healthy and keep the voice healthy so I would never recommend a teacher to anybody because I don't, I don't have any great faith in most teachers. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I was lucky and also that I listen to people who know how to sing. 
you know, I was a great, and, the, you know, those who can't sing, some of them have great talent. Uh, but the point for me was that I had to figure out what the strength was that I had and then throw everything at it so that I could keep it there because there were a lot of other things that were against me and I talk about a lot of them in the book one of them was the fact that I was an alcoholic so I was always struggling against the one on the one side the necessity for traveling and touring and singing and getting up and showing up and being on time and doing a record every year and hunting for material and going on the road and doing shows and television and international travel, that was the one side of the deal. The other side was that I was drinking myself to death. So, you know, that was my battle well, when and did, one may, of the ones that just about brought me down. May I ask, when did and the... And again, I was lucky sure. because I found, uh, I, I found, I went into treatment in 1978, so I don't have to deal with that particular demon anymore. But there were years when I did. And I wanted to write about it and to talk about this journey as to how it came about, who I met, who I hung out with, who I made music with, um, and what was my life in the midst of this incredible social and political and musical turmoil that I was living in. Well, absolutely. Can, can I ask, though, it, it, when did the drinking really start or get out of hand? Was it when you were already famous and traveling and you were turning to it to just get through it? Or was it already even sort of before then? Oh, no. I'm an Irish person with an <laughs> Irish uh, illness. And, <laughs> and there are other nationalities who have it, too. But we have the Irish virus, and it was in my genes, and it was pretty predictable, I would say, always was there. And, and was there any, when you started to explore why, aside from your obviously being Irish and being in the culture, did you suddenly dig up some particular nugget that said, oh, that's why I'm doing, I'm meditating no, there something. there is no why. There really is no in why. In addiction, why? there is no why. There's just the if or if not. And the trick is to find an if not and to, I went to treatment, which is why I, where I found out the if not was, <laughs> if you don't drink, life is going to improve. You know, I used to have a friend who said, uh, you know, when, when I, mm -hmm. it's not that when I drank I always got into trouble, but when I got into trouble I was always drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much trouble did you get into, really? I mean, Oh, lots, and I'll tell you all about it in Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. You can read all about it. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, that's a teaser, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, please tell I me. I hope so. Where can they get Sweet Judy Blue? What, what publisher? And, and I'm sure every bookstore. It's a Random House uh, publication. It's on Crown, and uh, you can get it everywhere. I'm sure Greeley has a bookstore, and if not, you can go online and get it at Barnes and Noble online. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it on my website. You can go to Random House. You can go anywhere they sell books or Kindles. Or yeah. I also made an audio of this book, which is a first. I. As you mentioned before, I've written a number of books about one aspect or another of my life, but I've never done, which is really crazy, I've never done an audio. You know, somebody who's a singer and who right. records dozens of albums over the course of 50 years, I've never, I never before did an audio. But there is one available, and uh, I sing on it, by the way, in case Ooh. anybody wanted to know. Do you, do you sing songs from Bohemian, or just songs, or little a cappella things to illustrate your point, or... What what are the songs on there for? In the book, yeah, I the audio book, yeah. I wanted to illustrate the writers, both myself and others, and so every I don't know few pages, you'll find a couple of lines of 
lyric, and when I came to those couple of lines of lyric in the reading, I just sang them. That's sure. Right. Oh, oh, yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, I think in the audio, by the way, in the audio there are five songs of that I've written, and one of them is from the new album from Bohemian, which I wrote about my mother. It's called In the Twilight. She died 14 months ago, and oh. um, it was a very hard loss for all of us. And I think it's, you know, it's probably the best thing I've ever written, probably because it's about my mother. And because it, also because I think it's a portrait of a time. You know, she was 94, and she lived through a lot of things, and including my father and all of us. And um, I, I, I feel very strongly about the song as a kind of, I don't know, Stud Sturkel always talks about the oral tradition, and, and there's a story in there about the century, really, about the two centuries. She lived through all of one and part of another. Wow. And can I ask, was My Father your first song that you wrote? No, My Father was the fourth song that I wrote, oh, however, okay. so not too far from off. Okay. Uh, the first one was Since You've Asked, and then I wrote Albatross and a song called Skyfell, which has died a, a, a death that was <laughs> earned, I think. And then my father, who, and it's interesting because I, I wrote the song about my father probably three weeks before his death, and I was going to see him. I was coming back from England. I was going to co- coming to Colorado, and he died before he heard the song, and the same thing happened with my mother in that about three weeks before she died, I started the song, and I did not finish it until after her death, so she didn't hear that either. But she heard plenty of songs about my dad, let me tell you. <laughs> well, your dad seemed like a pretty special... And probably yeah. heard enough about him to, you know, uh, plenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, More than enough. Here's kind of a Wikipedia question, but he was blind, or, or so it said on the... Uh, well, and, and also a radio DJ, as you said, a mu- musician. But was he... he was blind? Or not? He was blind from the age of four, and was uh, very successful, you know, went to all the schools. <coughs> the school in in uh, <coughs> Gooding was called the School for the Deaf, Dumb, and Blind. And the school in Lewiston was called the Normal School. Right. Uh, go figure. <laughs> and uh, then he went to the University of Idaho on a scholarship. He was terribly bright and, of course, a brilliant musician and singer. And he was never a disc jockey. He never played a record in his life. He sang everything live on the radio, oh. had guests. We met Bob Hope and George Shearing and Red Skelton and The Shadow. And all kinds of people came to be on his radio show as guests, as people will do. And play the piano, sing, dance, tell stories. And then he would sing Rogerson Hart and uh, Irish songs and read Emerson quotes and Dylan Thomas and uh, and and talk politics. I mean, he was very outspoken. It was the kind of old-fashioned radio where you you had he, he told May West jokes and he and he talked philosophy and and uh, was generally uplifting. Let's say that. Do you still have? Sort of like your show. Do, well, thank you. Do, do you still have tapes? Is there any preservation? Uh, not a lot, <clears throat> but a couple, yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, I'm, I, th- I think that's that's particularly wonderful. And uh, speaking again still of songwriting, I am wondering about one of my favorite songs of yours, um, which I think is one of the best story songs that I've ever come across called The Blizzard. That, that you did. Was uh, that just in your head, or was it based on somebody's real experience, or why? It was just, it's just a lovely you know, piece everything of, you yeah. write is based on your experience, so... 
It's okay. just that the poetic license comes in and you take dictation. Um, I had some concerts planned in <clears throat> in Aspen at the um, Opera House, which I was, which is where I was last night, and um, at the Wheeler Opera House. And I was, it was, the shows were made into a a television special by Disney called Coming Home, and it was a it was a kind of a family reunion. We had many family reunions, but this one was filmed by Disney and. Uh, we all met in Denver, and then we drove up to the mountains, and we had a wonderful time. And I, Chris Christopherson, was my guest on these concerts. And as I was planning the shows and the music that was going to be on the shows, I kept thinking, you know, my father wrote a great song about Colorado when he when we moved here in 1950, uh, 1949. Yeah. And I thought, well, it's pathetic that I don't have a song about Colorado. So I sat down in a snowstorm in Connecticut and wrote the blizzard about a snowstorm in Colorado. Oh, wow. I, it's just like that. I mean, the economy of storytelling it has a little bit of everything in, in that song. And I'm just, you know, I, I, well, I it's just one of your best achievements. Well, it's one of my favorite songs to perform, certainly. I do love it. I think it's, you know, I wrote it when I was coming off the the first major biography that I wrote, which was called Trust Your Heart. And that was... Um, published by Houghton Mifflin in 1987. And I had spent, what, four years, I think, writing that, about the same time as I've spent writing Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. And in between, I've written eight other, seven other books, wow. actually, but one of which is a mystery. So you find, you see that I like, I like doing that. But I had come out of that first big phase of writing for this big biography with, you know, the real deal with a real editor, Nan Talisis, my editor. What a oh, wow. marvelous, marvelous editor she is. And I think that the idea of telling stories and being able to do it in music was was fueled by that writing. I think everything everything that you do that's creative intersects with whatever else it, it's your, that you're doing. So that you're, if you're painting, you're, you're affected by music, you're affected by other art, you're affected by whatever you do, whether it's gardening or or um, child care or cooking, you know, it's all creative. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised that the song came out when it did, but I do think that there was a precedent for it, and I think it was doing all that writing in uh, Trust Your Heart. Wow. Can I ask, um, and, and invariably I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but um, was, the, was doing Send in the Clowns, an obvious thing because you hadn't done that much in the way of Broadway or, or that kind of popular song. Um, I mean, did it come to you and say, "Oh yeah, absolutely," or was it like, "Oh well, we'll try it," and then it came out great? And you know, how did how did that? Click? I don't ever try it. I don't ever try it. Mm. If I feel passionate about something, I will do it. But it's like a love affair. You either go wholehearted or you say, "No, no, thanks." I um, I had. There was a precedent. Of course, the whole precedent is my whole previous life with the music True. of Rodgers and Hart and Rodgers and Hammerstein and George Gershwin, everything I grew up in with with my dad. But also the precedent was also in, in 1966 on the album called In My Life. I had done music from... Pirate, oh, from uh, Marat Saab, that's right. Three, uh, from Three Penny Opera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, and also from the Marad Saad. So there was theater precedent. However, what what 
lured me into uh, in the clowns was the fact that a friend of a friend of Leonard Cohen's and a friend of mine called me one day and said, and that was an album on which I was doing. I'd already written Houses and Born to the Breed, a couple other things I yeah. think, and I knew I was going to do City of New Orleans, and I I think so, right? Was that album? Yeah, City of New Orleans and uh, a couple other songs I was pretty sure of, and. She sent me, this friend of ours, said to me, You've, there's a song in this play. I didn't know who Sondheim was. I hadn't had a clue. And she said, there's a song in this play that you've got to hear. And I said, oh, well, you know, <laughs> who knows. So she sent me the album. I put the needle on the track. I heard the song. I said, oh, my God. I called Hal Prince on the phone. And one of the things was that I already had a hit single, so people answered my phone calls. And I said, listen, there's a great song in this play of yours. I didn't even know the name of the play. He said, I know, I know, I know. I said, it's in in the clowns. He said, I know, I know. He said, about 200 people have recorded it. I said, I don't care. I have to record it. And I, I knew who I wanted to orchestrate it, I went straight to Jonathan Tunick, who did the orchestration for Sondheim, who does all of his orchestrations except for Into the Woods. I think that was the only one that he didn't hmm. do. Might have been and yeah. I said, hi, Jonathan, and he answered my call, too. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, God. And we've worked together many times since then, Jonathan and I. And, of course, his brilliance, he had done, of course, the whole score for Little Night Music. So, you know that da 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 dee 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 with the English horn. That was him, of course. Right. Although the orchestration, although the harmonics are all in Sondheim's original piano versions, which is which blows my mind about Sondheim. He is so brilliant, beyond brilliant. That's the story of sending the clowns. And fortunately, I had a great record company. I had a great sales team on the record company. The marketing in that company was superior. Radio was poised for me. Mm-hmm. I had had a big hit with Sun in the Clowns and Someday Soon with, uh, you know, even who knows where the time goes. Amazing Grace had just come off the charts big times for the second time. I think it was top ten or something. So they were ready for this when it happened. Now, that mm-hmm. has changed for me about the music business. Uh, it's not as accessible or as easy, and I'm not on a lecture anymore, which changed dramatically. So there were a lot of things going for that for that rendition of that song, and uh, I was very lucky. Is that, is that why you moved from Electra to CBS? Because Electra just wasn't that kind of label Electra, that it was. Electra changed dramatically. Jack Holzman left in '72. David Geffen took over, and David was behind the production of Judas, the Judas album hmm. on which uh, Sen and the Clowns appeared. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to say goodbye. Oh, oh, well, um, thank you very, very much. It's been an absolute delight talking with you, uh, Judy Collins. Please, everybody, go see her in her various concerts in Colorado, including Boulder on the 25th. Please get her book, Sweet for Judy Blue Eyes, and uh, also get her album, Bohemian. Judy, um, I can only thank you so much for spending the time with us in the neighborhood. Best of luck to you, your music, your writing, and everything. Thank Dave, you. Dave, so- it's been a pleasure. Have a beautiful day. You too. It's always a good day in Colorado. Isn't it then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you so Take much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Colorado.
Pretend you don't give a damn My cabin's a 
Where are 
busy being free There's a lady in the city And she thinks she loves them all There's the one who's thinking of her There's the one who sometimes calls There's the one who writes those letters With his facts and figures crawled She has brought them to her senses They have laughed inside her laughter Now she rallies her defenses For she fears that one will ask her For eternity There's a jouster and a jester And a man who owns a store There's a drummer and a dreamer And you know there may be more She will love them when she sees them They will lose her if they follow And she only means to please them And her heart is full and hollow like a cactus tree Why is she so busy being free Like a cactus tree Beautiful version there of one of my favorite Joni Mitchell songs performed by Judy Collins and Sean Colvin was the other voice on there. That's from the Bohemian CD, the new Judy Collins album. And uh, I hope you were here about a half hour, 45 minutes ago, when you got to hear Judy Collins talking to us in the neighborhood. My goodness, she's so well-spoken and so open and honest and direct and just throws everything out there and... Uh, I mean, I could have kept her on for another hour. She just had to zip out at uh, 10.30. Yeah, I, I always try to keep them a little longer if I can, but uh, she, she was just great. And I wish I could play more songs by her. I probably will play one or two more. Oh, oh in fact, more than that. I'm glad I reminded myself. Um, when we do our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment, later on Dave's Gone By, that's where we play you know, a handful of Bob Dylan songs, because he is Bob Dylan, well, this particular Bob Dylan segment coming up later on will be all Judy Collins' covers of Dylan tunes. She'll, she's done his songs all throughout her career, from like her fourth or fifth album on. I mean, she even did a whole record just of Dylan and Beatles songs, I believe. So we'll do about four or five more Judy Collins songs, all of them Dylan covers. So stay tuned for that. That'll be around noon here, Colorado time, mountain time in Greeley. You're listening to Dave's Gone By. This is our 376th episode, the spirit of 376. And I'm just, you know, over the absolute moon. Uh, I mean, not that I don't try and do a great show every single time, 
but when sometimes things come together and you've got Judy Collins, and then coming up in less than half an hour, we'll have Alice Ripley, Tony winner for Next to Normal. She's done more than half a dozen major Broadway shows. Also, she's got a band called Ripley that she performs with. I mean, just like, whoa! All of that on top of Rabbi Saul Solomon inside Broadway and, uh, I mean, <laughs> and talking to my father on the occasion of his 75th birthday, which is coming up in just five days. So uh, it's always great to have my dad in the neighborhood, too. So, so, I mean, think about that. What a show. I'm so thrilled. And this show would not happen without the kindnesses and the generosities of some very special people at Ulit Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since the mid-1970s, the Torong family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press right in the heart of Hewlett, Long Island. It's about two blocks from the train station, just across the street from the old Lomans that they've got there. Minuteman is the place to go for all your copying, printing, binding jobs. If you have a logo that you want to put on a pencil or a mug or a calendar or a magnet, Hewlett Minuteman is the place to go. And, of course, if you have presentations that need to be bound. Uh, feces, God knows I was dealing with that uh, a couple of weeks back. Um, or, or just your basic regular black and white or color copy jobs. Minuteman will do it for you in reasonable time at reasonable prices with really great people. And you know what? If you tell them Dave sent you from Dave's Gone By, you get 10% off any job big or small. So you walk in there, you know, one, one piece of paper copy, and let's say it's 10 cents. Uh-uh-uh. It's only nine. Of course, if you have a job that's suddenly $1,000, it's only 900. If you mention Dave's Gone By to the great folks at Hewlett Minuteman Press, why not check them out? Give them a call. 516-569-5577 is the number. Area code 516-569-5577. During the school year, they are open Mondays through Fridays, plus half a day on Saturday. So they may still be open when they're just about closing now. But check them. You know, if they're closed now, call them on Monday. Go there and get your copy jobs done at Minuteman Press in Hewlett. This program is also brought to you by TotalTheater.com, a wonderful place to read reviews and feature stories about Broadway, Off-Broadway, and theater going on all over the country and all over the world. And best of all, TotalTheater.com, absolutely free. You can surf to your heart's content, read reviews of the latest, biggest Broadway openings, uh, shows like Seminar and Porgy and Bess, read what's happening off-Broadway, read interviews and articles about the stars, you know, and also in reviews and feature stories from shows going on as far-flung as Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Los Angeles, Italy, Edinburgh, it's all right there at Total Theater. Dot com. And you can spell that any way you want to, by the way. It can be theater with an E-R, theater with an R-E. Well, okay, not any way you want to. If you spell it with a Q, you're, you're, <laughs> you're not going to get any website. But those two ways will work for you. TotalTheater.com. And by the way, Total Theater is the parent company of Performing Arts Insider, which is the Bible of Broadway, has been since the mid-1940s. This is a journal, a hard-copy journal, that gives you all the basic detailed, not even basic, it's, it's, it's really heavily detailed 
information about what's going on on and off Broadway and all across the stages of New York, cabaret, opera, dance, the awards in the performing arts, all in the pages of Performing Arts Insider. This is the place where people in the industry look to find out, ooh, what's, what's coming to Broadway in a few months or a couple of years? What actor is leaving a show? How do I contact that director? How do I get in touch with that press agent or that manager? How do I, I want to, I need a designer for my show or for my big project. How do I get in touch with them? That information is in the pages of Performing Arts Insider. So go to performingartsinsider.com for more information and find out how you can subscribe to this really important and valuable and deeply respected journal of commercial American theater, performingartsinsider.com. I want to give a shout out to Jeff Goodman, my very good friend, who is the owner and proprietor of Fancy Schmancy Balloons. So if you are having a party in the tri-state area, not Colorado, Utah, and whatever, it's New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, back east. But yeah, if you're doing some kind of big party, maybe you're planning something for St. Patrick's Day, you know, and it's not too early to start thinking about your graduation parties, and there's always bar mitzvahs and christenings and what have you, go and give Jeff Goodman a call. 516-797-3229 is his number. Area code 516-797-3229. It's called Fancy Schmancy Balloons, but remember, it's all about making your party look the best that it possibly can. He does the centerpieces, and if you don't know how to throw a party, you don't know where to begin, he can hook you up with the DJ, the caterer, the florist, everything you need through fancy schmancy balloons. Shouldn't your occasion be a fancy schmancy affair? 516-797-3229. Thank you to the sponsors of Dave's Gone By, and of course the sponsors of this radio station, uncradio.com. want to let you know uh, to keep listening. We're here until 1 o'clock doing this show, Dave's Gone By. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon today, we're going to have a live session with the band T-Shirts for Tomorrow. They'll physically be here in the studio, so we're going to have to put up some barricades and, and get some cops around. But tune in, uncradio.com, or if you're in the dorm rooms listening on your TVs on Channel 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon today, the band T-Shirts for Tomorrow will be here. And give a shout-out to the Marquee Magazine, because programming on the station is supported by them. They're an independent Colorado mag that covers the regional live music scene in print and online. It has the, mu- the region's most thorough concert calendar. Marquee, designed for music freaks by music freaks. More information at MarqueeMag.com. M-A-R-Q-U-E-E Mag.com. The Marquee, live for live music. And we are here live at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. You're listening to Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. Absolutely just tickled blue, purple, and pink to be here today talking to people like Judy Collins. And just 15 minutes from now, we will have Alice Ripley talking to us in the neighborhood. Alice Ripley, Tony Winner for Next to Normal. And also, let's see, what, what are other... Broadway show. Oh, she was Tony nominated for Sideshow back in 1998. Can't believe it was that long ago. She was also in Tommy, Sunset Boulevard, 
Les Mis and the uh, Rocky Horror Show, the Broadway revival that they did a few years back. Amazing career and quite an interesting lady and, and, and a pretty great singer, too. Alice Ripley, not too far away. But before then, since we're talking Broadway things, let's go inside Broadway for news of the Rialto and beyond. Well, uh, I don't know. These winter weeks always seems like most of the news you get from Broadway tends to be negative stuff. Bad, you know, shows close because the tourists aren't there and all the kids are in school and everybody's busy and hunkered down for the winter. So it's like, this is closing and this is stopping early. and this is... But, you know, that, that's what it is. And, and just a couple more weeks, we're going to be hitting spring and then everything's going to be about, wow, this is opening and this is starting previews and this has to open before the Tony Awards. So we'll get these few weeks left of Bitter Winter Done and get the news through Broadway. Well, Nora and Delia Efron's play Love, Loss, and What I Wore is, has picked an ending date. It's been running for a while, since October of 2009. 1,013 performances will have been performed of this show since its opening, and it's going to close, as I said, March 25th, and off-Broadway's West Side Theater. Actresses who have taken their turns in the show. I don't know if you know about this. So I'm, I'm sure it's going to be done all over the place, kind of like Menopause the Musical and the Vagina Monologues. I, I, it's better, actually, in my opinion, than Menopause. It's a, a Basically, it's women talking about being women and their lives and what way we're wearing at a certain time of their lives represented to them, a particular dress, a, a wedding gown, a hat. And it, it's, it's very nicely done. It's a very nice piece. And they've had celebrities cycling through it over the two years that it's been playing. So listen to some of the people who have been off-Broadway for a time doing Love, Loss, and What I Wore. Sierra Bogus, Dawn Wells from Gilligan's Island. She's in it right now. Allison Frazier, Anne Mira, Tyne Daly, Rosie O'Donnell, Kristen Chenoweth, Jane Lynch, Brooke Shields, Fran Drescher, Anita Gillette. She was our guest in the neighborhood just a couple of weeks ago. So farewell to love, loss, and what I wore. Kind of a loss that that is moving on from off-Broadway, but I'm sure we won't have heard the last of that show. Some nice news. Uh, the Drama Desk has picked its date and place for its awards this season. The Drama Desk Awards will be held on June 3rd, and they're not doing it where they usually do. They used to be up around, like, uh, 95th Street for a while, and now, nope, nope, they pushed it to Town Hall, right in Midtown on West 43rd Street and 6th Avenue. So, I, I think you can buy tickets. I, I, I think you don't have to be either an actor or a member of the Drama Desk to attend the awards. I think you can buy tickets just like you can when they're available for the Tony Awards. So mark your calendars, June 3rd at Town Hall for the Drama Desk. Oh, and there's a new teacher in seminar. Hey, hey, there's a hit play on Broadway. It isn't a big, splashy musical. It's not made by people like Andrew Lloyd Webber or South Park. No, it's a play by Teresa Rebeck, the incredibly prolific playwright, and also she's a television writer, called Seminar. It's um, doing well enough that it's outlasting its original cast. And Alan Rickman, who got really terrific reviews for doing the show, he's staying with the production until April 1st. But rather than close the show, 
There's enough interest in it that they're recasting, and taking Alan Rickman's place will be Jeff Goldblum, and he'll be doing the show for eight weeks at Broadway's John Golden Theater, starting on, well, April 3rd. So no fooling, you have just a couple more weeks to catch Alan Rickman in seminar on Broadway, but then it'll still be there with Jeff Goldblum. And I guess you can call this nice news, people making nice nice, uh, and using their spidey sense, I guess would be the uh, the most appropriate phrase. Julie Taymor and her production company, Eight-Legged Productions, and the producers of Spider-Man have settled out of court. Remember all the back and forth because she was fired and uh, they didn't like what she was doing anymore with the show and the show was fail- not necessarily failing at the box office because it never was. But the critics didn't like it. There was that ridiculously long preview period and the producers just said, you know, this thing is out of control. We've got to get rid of Julie Taymor. Taymor saying, this thing wouldn't exist Without me, it wouldn't look like it does. It wouldn't feel like it does. It wouldn't have all the extraordinary effects and the whole sensibility without me. So they went to court. You know, her asking, hey, I want to be paid my full fee, even though I was fired. This show is a huge hit. I mean, it may never recoup its money. It costs $60, $70 million to put up. But at least it's making $1.4, $1.5 million grosses a week coming back. So, you know, it's kind of hard to call it a flop either. And and so they went to court and she got her dough. And I think she'll also get a piece of whatever money the show makes when they put it out on the road and do it other places. Uh, and she also does have to agree that she is no longer part of the Spider-Man production in, in any way, shape, or form. I don't know if they're going to take her name off the playbill. I doubt that. But uh, she's just not connected anymore and I think they're shaking hands and at least in being able to walk away. She gets her money. It's all about the money. The lawyers made the most money. She gets what she wants. They got what they wanted. It's done. Uh, I mean, in one of the articles I read, there's still some other copyright stuff going on in another legal thing. Whatever. This is the big one. They finished. And moving away from Broadway and off-Broadway, I want to recommend the show that I just saw last night here at the University of Northern Colorado, directed by a, a really nice guy, a really good teacher here at the Performing and Visual Arts School of UNC, Ken Womble, took on, and I mean, all kudos to him for doing this, Brian Friel's drama, Dancing at Lunasa. Now, this is a beautiful and beautifully written play, but boy, oh boy, talk about something of a challenge. First of all, it, these are really deep woods Irish people, so you have to make the choice. Am I going to keep accents, or am I just going to try and do it flat American, or what? Well, he chose to go with the accents, and for the most part, I had I had trouble with one or two of the performers uh, trying to do Irish, or in one case Welsh, sort of, but otherwise the accents were fine, did not, not only didn't get away, or, or get in the way, of the performances, but really enhanced them and, and gave you the feeling of this little town near Ballybeg of these Irish sisters with almost barely two cents between them and trying to get by, making their money either sewing or, or Kate is a school teacher and dealing with the fact that not only are they feeding themselves, but now Uncle Jack has come to stay. He's come back from Africa after 25 years. And so they're dealing with him trying to get acclimated and reaccustomed to life in Ireland after being, you know, in Uganda 
for two and a half decades. Plus, they've got to feed him. Plus, they've got to feed themselves. Plus, they've got to, you know, maintain their decorum because they're no longer in their teens and 20s. So they can't really go out dancing because people will talk. All sorts of these little internecine things going on. And what's, what's, you know, really fabulous about the play, if you, if you really get into it and, because I, I'll admit, the first time I saw Dancing at Lunasa on Broadway with its original Irish cast, I was kind of bored. I couldn't, I was listening, I was, I drifting in and out of it. Parts I liked, parts I didn't. I just kept waiting for a real plot, for something to happen. And then I ended up seeing it on Broadway a few months later with an American cast. And believe it or not, the American cast somehow got to me and touched me more than the original did. Maybe it's because now I sort of knew the play a little bit and I could concentrate more on certain things and, and pay more attention. But the second time I saw Lunasa, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. And the writing is just beautiful. I'm... I'm somewhere in the middle on, on the staging that I saw last night at UNC. It's really well done. It didn't quite move me the way the Broadway version did, and yet it's, it, it has the tone, it has the beauty, and it has the interrelationships. But I can also understand how some audience members, especially who don't know the play, will sit there and go, okay, is, is anything really going to happen in this play? Is, is, is there any action at all? I mean, they throw in a little bit in the second act of one of the sisters goes briefly missing. So that ramps up the energy level just a little bit. But I shouldn't say the energy level, because the energy is there. It ramps up sort of the, the plot interest, the narrative, a little. So I will warn you right, right up front. I will say if you go to this fine production of Dancing at Lunasa, don't expect to be like sitting there, your heart pounding and, and you know, wondering what's going to happen minute to minute. Because it ain't like that. You've got to listen. You've got to kind of hear the poetry of it. You've got to watch the interrelationships of the sisters. And if you do that, you will have a very fine time at this very strong production with some really good actresses in it and uh, very nicely staged. This is, you know, they kind of bisect. Well, no, that would be in half. They, they take two-thirds of the stage and make it for the home and then one-third for the garden. And they keep the narrator in the garden for most of it, except in the last scene when they turn that around, and the, the sisters are in the garden and the narrator's in the house, and it's, a, it's just a beautiful way of staging that. And of course, if you listen to those monologues by the narrator, it's some of the most beautiful writing for the stage ever. So, Dancing at Lunasa, it's at the Norton Theater. They're playing one more show tonight, and then they have a matinee tomorrow. I do strongly recommend it. Go see it. And that is Inside Broadway. It is 11.12 in the morning here at uncradio.com. You're listening to Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave, and in just a few minutes we will have with us the wonderful, the beautiful, the talented Alice Ripley. Let's hear her now with a song from the show that got her her Tony Award from Next to Normal. This is I Miss the Mountains. There was a time when I flew higher Was a time no wild girl running free Would be me Now I see her feel the fire Now I know she needs me there to share 
tranquil years Seems they've dried up all my tears And while she runs free and fast Seems my wild days are past But I miss the mountains I miss the dizzy heights All the manic magic days And the dark depressing nights I miss the mountains I miss the highs and lows All the climbing, all the falling All the while the wild wind blows Stinging you with snow And soaking you with rain I miss the mountains I miss the Mountains make you crazy Here it's safe and sound My mind is somewhere hazy My feet are on the ground Everything is balanced here And on an even keel Everything is perfect Nothing's real Nothing Next to Normal, featuring the Tony winner from that show, Alice Ripley, I Miss the Mountains. Well, don't miss um, this next segment of Dave's Gone By, because we have that vocalist, that actress with us in the neighborhood. She is the winner of the 2009 Tony and 2009 Helen Hayes Awards for that show, Next to Normal. She was also Tony-nominated for Sideshow. She was on Broadway in such shows as Sunset Boulevard, Les Mis, and the Rocky Horror Show. She was just off-Broadway in Wild Animals You Should Know, and if that weren't enough, she's got three albums out, including one with her band Ripley, um, the latest album is the acoustic one called Daily Practice, and there's a single that we're going to play just at the end of the interview called Beautiful Eyes. And she does have beautiful eyes and beautiful everything else. She's Alice Ripley, and she's on the phone with us. Hello, Alice. Good morning. Good morning. 
Hey, Dave. How's Colorado? It's hey, it's Colorado. It's beautiful. <laughs> There's nothing else yeah, to say. I mean, I it's cold. A blue sky today. Uh, I'm sorry. What was that? I bet you have a blue sky today. Um. Yep. Yep. We do. It's like 300 and something days a year of sunshine. I was just, um, earlier in the show, we were talking to Judy Collins, who is, of course, a Colorado devotee. And that was the first thing she said, oh, it's Colorado. It looks like Colorado. It, you know, nothing else quite like it. <laughs> How, how's New York doing? It's actually beautiful today. It feels like spring, and it's the first day we've had like that, and so everybody's, everybody's face has a, a ray of hope on it. <laughs> We, they just want to prove the groundhog wrong. That, that's that's basically that. Yeah, exactly. What does he know? So, since this is a college radio station, University of Northern Colorado Radio, um, let, let's get uh, kind of roll it back to your college years. You have a BFA in musical theater from Kent State, and wondering, you know, how you chose to do that, and also how important you think that training and classes are as a lifelong theater and musical theater person. Well, ever since I was a kid, I knew what I wanted to do. So I knew that when I went to college, it would be to study acting and music. By the time I got to the college age, there was a, um, well, I went to DePaul University in Indiana, which is a small school, and studied music. I was a vocal performance major, even though I wanted to study acting. They didn't have any acting there, so I ended up transferring to Kent State, which it sounds, I don't know, it sounds kind of frivolous in a way, but you know, Kent State actually they had a program for musical theater. You could get a BFA in musical theater, mm-hmm. and this was you know they still have that, and now it's common to, for colleges to offer this. But back but then, it wasn't the case yeah. at the time. Kent State was one of the first colleges that offered that degree, and so you know I transferred there and, and got my degree there, and I studied you know the I guess I guess a degree in musical theater is really a trip major. Dance, acting, and music. So you don't become a master at all three of them, but what you do in college is you, with that kind of a liberal arts education, you saturate, you get saturated in the work. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about when you're in this business is the actual work. Now, acting classes are useful. Of course, vocal lessons, musical lessons are useful, but they, they, you put them to use while you're working, while you're on stage, or while you're actually while you're actually practicing, or while while you're actually performing. So I think that it is it's important to get a college education um, for reasons other than what you're actually studying, because I, I think that college is a place for you to grow up and figure out how to, how you're going to pay these bills and that you actually have to pay them. You know, <laughs> you can't just ignore them. I think that college is a useful place to grow up. And, you know, if you end up learning something from your classes, too, well, that's good. When you're when you're a creative artist, you learn the most while you're actually doing it. Mm. So a lecture isn't going to be as useful to you as an actor or as a creative artist, as is actually doing a show. Do you remember You'll some learn of the... learn a lot more actually mm. doing it. Do you remember some of the shows that you did when you were getting your BFA? Oh, yeah. Um, well, my very first... Role in college was Meg in Brigadoon. Oh. First semester. And I did Sweeney Todd, and I played Mrs. Lovett, which seems ridiculous because I was only 19. It's <laughs> <laughs> really, you know, I mean, I think she's a little bit older than A little. Me, well, everybody said Helena Bonham Carter was. I was like Mrs. Lovett at that age, yeah. who's 
yeah. you end up you you know it ends up forging something in you it galvanizes your chops because um even though you're only 19 you have to still take it in and digest it and make it make it work you know and that's the kind of training that that I'm talking about that's the kind of training that really is effective for you and and less so sitting in a room listening to a lecture although like i said you know you you get it from everywhere it's a, it's a liberal arts experience there you know so you're growing through your whole experience of being in college not just sitting in class well do you still take classes or lessons or or vocal warm-ups or dance warm-ups? I mean, how do you stay in condition to do musical theater? I do. I, I, I have a voice teacher that I've... I'm at. Right now I'm taking a, a hiatus from oh. her, but I've been studying with her for years. And without Joan... Her name is Joan Later. Mm-hmm. Without her guidance and instruction and faith, I wouldn't have been able to play the role of Diana, the one that you, that you were talking about earlier, the track that you played, that's Diana singing. Right. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without my voice teacher helping me through. What is it that they give you? What, what are certain, even specific things that they told you that you would not have known um, had you not been with them, had you just gone on and done, because you've already been in a few Broadway musicals. So what is it that you learned from them that has allowed you to do Diana and save your voice and, you know, not go mad doing the role? So you mean why I keep taking lessons, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, what did you learn from the lessons from them that you wouldn't have known when you first started doing, like, Tommy or Sunset Boulevard? I mean, what what knowledge did you accumulate that allows you to take on a much more kind of a role like Diana in Next to Normal? Um, well, I, I believe that, that an actor draws roles to them and hmm. they appear in front of you. And then you have to know when the right one is in front of you and you grab it. And that's what happened with Diana. And I, I believe that I, I, don't, I don't think I could have played Diana until exactly the moment when I started to approach her. Because she's very complicated and she's she's you know about the age that i am now maybe a little bit younger and you know you have to you have to reach a certain point in your 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 creative playground you have to reach a certain point in your your imagination and in your work where you're ready to play something and then it finds you that's what i believe and in other words i i don't think i i couldn't have played diana 10 years ago because i i didn't have what it took hmm you know, and that's why it's so comforting to me when I when I think about Sanford Meisner, who was one of our great acting teachers of the last century. He wrote a book called On Acting. It's a thin volume. You can roll it up and stick it in your back pocket. And something that he said in there was that it takes 20 years to become an actor, which, you know, when you're 20, <laughs> what I did was just cast that aside. And I said, well, that doesn't apply to me because that's what you have to do to make it. But the truth is, it, it is true. It's true, and it's actually, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a relief to, to face this and embrace it, because even though at the age of 20, when you're studying theater and music in school, you want to have it now. You want to be ready to do sure. it now. You feel like you've already waited, because you wanted to do this since you were five. It's been 15 years, and you're still waiting, you know. So... 
it's a relief to, to read Sanford Meisner's book and realize that he's right, that it takes 20 years. Not that that's a punishment, but it's a gift. You don't have to have it right now. Mm. Give yourself 20 years to become an interesting person who's charismatic and has your act together off stage, George Clooney. Okay, and then you become that charismatic person on stage or on camera because George Clooney can just turn off his personality. He takes it with him everywhere he goes, and he developed that in his real life. Huh. And that's what charisma is, I think. Okay. Don't um, you? I mean, isn't it charisma is like living a full life and being saturated with all things and somehow making something beautiful out of it that you can use to connect with other people? Okay. No, I mean, I don't know... George Clooney enough or, or know him personally. I've, I've just been watching up in the air and yes, he certainly has that charisma on camera. I don't know about his, his real life. Are you guys friends or something or you just know this from no, the ozone? No, one of my secret boyfriends in my dreams. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, I like to use him as an example of somebody who has a lot of charisma. Oh, and okay, I can yeah. say to a teenager George Clooney might have had you know, he was attractive but he... he he used that time as he was growing up to build his oh okay his persona, and so he happens to be a film actor. But I like to talk to the students and tell them that they they can give themselves a break. They can give themselves twenty years to become charismatic, or to become interesting, or to become an actor that that actually understands this complicated situation in this relationship in the script without it having to be hit over the head over and over. Like, they get it right away the first time they read it. That comes from life experience. Because you've been in a complicated relationship. And, and right? By, yeah, sorry. And that's how you can look at the script and go, well, I can understand why she would want to do that even though this is what she's supposed to be doing. And she's not telling anybody about it. Or Those are the kind of things that you have to live life before you can before you can understand that kind of a, you know, how that character ticks, what makes that character do what it does and behave in the way that he or she does. Well, now, now speaking of relationships, though, you married a drummer. I mean, didn't you know girls are not supposed to marry drummers? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about anybody but me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. This, this interview is about me. Well, well, <laughs> excuse Well, he is in your band, so you, you can't really That's avoid... That's true. Yeah, so... You know, I mean, I do have a band, and um, it's a three-piece band: drums, guitar, and keyboard. Although on the single that we just, or that we're going to release on Tuesday, it's called "Beautiful Eyes." Mm-hmm. That single is it's actually it's a single. It's not on an album. The daily practice album you mentioned is uh, that's that's an album I released last year. Last year of all rock covers, "Beautiful Eyes" is a single that I wrote, mm. and we recorded. Ripley recorded. We self-produced it. And uh, I have to say, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty catchy. I can't imagine somebody, um, you know, not finding something about it that they like. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, I'm going to play it as soon as our, our interviews. Unless you want me to play it now, if you want to wait. Um, but well, I'm, I'm I'm ready to follow your lead. Oh well, thank you so much. Um, well, we'll wait because I'm, I'm having fun talking to Alice Ripley okay. here in the. <laughs> trying to keep it in sound bites, but hmm. Oh, I, I'm not good at the whole soundbite thing. I've only been doing radio nine and a half years, and yet I still haven't figured out how to do a sentence without 12 pan- parenthetical phrases that trail off into nothing. Well, I think it's okay as long as you bring it back around. You know, that's what I try to do. I mean, I might go out into different atmospheres with what I'm saying and going on tangent, but then I try to bring it back around to what we're talking about. Well, true. And also I have to bring <laughs> it back to you because it's, it's, it's certainly all about you. 
I have exactly. to exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I do have to ask. When I was researching and, and trying to have, figure out what questions to ask, I went on, um, you know, Google and YouTube, and I saw all these videos that you did, which are kind of weird. What was that all about? From like two, three years ago, was that you getting in in mental shape to play Diana, or were you just having fun, or were they promos for the band? Did they're like thirty um, seconds? What? It's funny. There, there, there is no me. There's no reason. There's no meaning to them, and there's no reason that it started out as a, almost like acting experiments, where I would take one line, and I, I would I would video myself saying this line. This just could be anything. Mm-hmm. Right? I'd set up a frame, I set, and I have about 300 of these videos now that people can go look at. So I, this is what I would do: I'd set up some kind of shot that was interesting or looked good, you know, and it would be a still shot, and I would do it to myself. I would hold the camera up. You know, take take a video of myself, and so the rule was um, the rule is with these videos is I'm not allowed to do them over, and I'm not allowed to practice. Hmm. So that's something that the viewer would never know, and they don't really even need to know. But if you look at each individual individual video, they might seem silly and meaningless, but the idea is to look at the picture of them. If you look at all of them together, you see me. Hmm. You see me. I mean, I'm just being silly and ridiculous. That's all there is to it. Some of them are a little more serious than others, right. um, but they're really just experiments uh, in exercises in ridiculousness. And some people are irritated by them, <laughs> which is funny to me. It's like, go watch them if you like them. Yeah, stop them at 10 people, seconds. Most, most people yeah. are entertained, and they enjoy them very much because they tell me so. Yeah, they're, they're cute. They're little interstitial odd things. I just, I was just wondering they're where. Short. Most of them are. Most of them are. I tried. I tried to keep them real short, but then I decided I'll make some that are just three minutes long because that's about how long I should expect to keep someone's attention. You know, then I started making them three minutes, but a lot of them were in the beginning. They were ten seconds, six yeah. seconds, twelve seconds, and what you were really seeing was a moving still image. It was, a, it was a still frame. What you see. But then I'll have like a couple of lines that I say, <laughs> silly lines, something silly that I do to the camera, and um, it was really fun for me to do. It was kind of like a performance art that I was doing for myself and capturing, and then sharing with anybody, any fans that might be interested. Huh. I mean, that's. Can I ask? It's a, a question that probably a lot of actors and, and people get asked. Do you? have to be so and and you make a joke about it it's like you know this is interview is about you it's you but do actors kind of have to be that way forever of sort of really kind of both self-involved and also sort of turning out that spotlight every minute to say like oh no me 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 because i'm kind of like that i admit you know what's funny is um it's funny because if you're going to do it effectively, this acting thing, it, it, you, it's, a, it's like a constant play between self-promotion and self-absorption and then complete detachment. Because you have to be completely absorbed in your imagination and completely absorbed in the idea that you would like to invest in, right, the creative idea. You want to invest your energy in, then you have to be detached from the results. Mm-hmm. And also, actors are, are are the product. Actors are the raw material, and actors are, are like they're a milk carton. Acting actors are a milk carton that you pick up and you sell or you buy. You know, it's a product. And 
the thing is, it's not my job to promote my work. It's really someone else's job. Someone goes to school to learn how to promote, you know, art, mm-hmm. whether it's theater or music or whatever. But I still have to know as much as I can about about promoting it. And that's the thing. It's like, it's funny because you think that actors are self-absorbed, and yet actors mostly do not like to promote themselves. They're not good at sending out email blasts or like or or the business side of it. And I really think it's because they're really actually absorbed in their work. Now, ego is something else, right? Ego's mm-hmm. ego's not really even related. Oh. Doesn't have to be related to a specific field at all. Be anything, but but I think that when you're talking about a creative imagination, and that's what an actor and a musician uses, yeah, you're self-absorbed in that way. Uh, I'm I'm often the the last one to look up and go, oh man, I should be gone by now because I'm over in the corner doing something, hmm. you know. And the lights come on, and I'm the last one standing. Oh, that's right, I was supposed to take off already. <laughs> I was absorbed in whatever I was doing over there in the corner, you know. You understand? Is that? Make any sense or kind of? I mean, again, because I, I do some performing. Mean, I'll be doing a show in New York in a couple of weeks, so I'm also trying to to figure out who I am as a person before I have to get up on that stage and and do the show myself too. So that's why you have to be detached from from the work, but absorbed in your imagination. So sometimes actors seem preoccupied, and it might seem like they're preoccupied with their only with their own things. But you know, that's I guess that's just the way it's going to look. Now, can I ask? I'm, I'm also going back to some of the, the singing things. Is that there's been something of a sea change in the type of music that we consider Broadway music these days, for the most part. I mean, over the past ten or twenty years. And so, yes, you have the Rodgers and Hammerstein and the Sondheim and the Kandra and Ebb, but now it's just as much um, everything from you know Bill Finn to Tom Kitt. And so, has is it different to sing the old-style Broadway from the more kind of pop-contemporary Broadway? Well, I'll tell you the truth for me, and that is that a song like I Had Myself a True Love from St. Louis Woman, which was written by Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer, I just sang it the other night. Uh, it's easier to sing. Hmm. Classic tunes. It's easier to sing something from Oklahoma or Brigadoon than it is to sing something from the contemporary rock stores, rock scores that that we have today. Because uh, well, part of it is the wear and tear of doing it every day with rock music. I mean, this is not an orchestral sound. This is there are amplifiers on stage, and you're standing right next to them, and they're hmm. loud, and they're loud eight times a week for two hours at a time. This is not like strings in the, in the pit. No, this is a band on stage with you. Mm. So this is this is not Brigadoon. And it is very challenging. Very challenging because, first of all, you can't hear yourself because it's rock music. I mean, if I were singing... Uh, hmm, let me think. If I were singing Sunset Boulevard, which is what I... I Originated, I created the role of Betty Schaefer on Broadway with Glenn Close's Norma Desmond. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's strings, there's an orchestra in the pit. It's a traditional sounding musical theater score. I sang a set show for two years, and I don't think I ever missed a show, except for my vacations. Whereas? Uh, Next to Normal is a rock score that's where I sing 30 of the 40 songs. 
and it's 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 an opera, meaning that the songs dovetail and they overlap, sung through. And that is, that, I'll tell you what, Bruce Springsteen doesn't do eight shows a week. Mm, true. I mean, he does three and a half and hour shows a week. singer doesn't mm, sing eight yeah. shows a week. So, a rock opera it makes you scratch your head and wonder how anybody could do it eight times a week. And so when you end up somehow actually accomplishing that, it's something of a miracle. But you still only have one day off a week when you're an actor on the stage. Right. Monday, usually. So when you're on the road traveling, and you have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, and you have a five-show weekend, so you have Friday, two Saturday, two Sunday, and you have Monday off, that's your week every week for months. Right. And you and often you do a one-weeker, I think in Denver we were there for two weeks, but if you do a one-weekers in a row on the road, you travel on Monday, so you don't have a day off. I'm just trying to tell you how different the scores are now than they were 50 years ago. And they didn't do five-show weekends 50 years ago. They, so, yeah. the, I don't really think that they had to do as much, actually, as many shows as they do now, because now it's a real commodity. This, You know, the traveling musical theater show. It used to be something, you'd go out on the road because because you had to in order to, to come back to New York, but now, now the shows in New York hope hope that they make it on the road. Right, because people, it's a great way for people to make money. Yeah, and shows the half the time don't break stuff. even in New York. They they need the road now. New York is just like the, you, you can say, "Oh, we we played on Broadway. We got Tony nominated or a Tony Award. Now we can bring it across the country for the next two years and actually make a buck." You know, it's, it's a very different sort well, of... I, think, I don't yeah. think the actors really make the money. Oh, oh, the well, producers that make the money and the writers and everything, but that's fine because when you take on the job of, of an actor, you're, take, you're, you're a tool, you're a cog, and if you think you're anything else, it's fine, but it won't serve you as, be, as best as if you um, assume and you understand that you're a cog and that you're there working for the whole team and that you can be replaced. But when some when a special role comes to you, and you're the first one to have it, you have the right to say this is my role and it was meant to be. And so I tell students that they can do that too because you need to take take what's yours and own it. And you literally need to own the role, otherwise no one's going to believe you. Well, yeah, playing it. You know, they're not going to believe that you're actually her. Even if you don't originate it, you have to take it and own it. No, even if you're a spear carrier in Shakespeare, you know, you've got to know what spear carrier you are, how you're going to hold the thing, and what your relationship is to everybody out, else out on that stage. Weird as that makes sense. just brought that up, Dave, because yeah. when I was in college, I was a reluctant musical theater performer. It's not that I didn't enjoy doing it and I didn't enjoy the people, because I did. He said, I wanted to be an actor, and I thought there was a difference. Hmm. I thought there was a difference between acting and musical theater. <laughs> there is no difference. Acting comes first, and then musical theater is that's what you put on top of it. But if you don't have your character rooted in reality, even if you are just a spear carrier, and I used to say back then in school, you know, I wish that the people who were who were the ensemble members in Oklahoma that was happening happening in our school at the time. I wish that they had as much commitment to what they were doing as the spirit carriers in, in Hamlet that we were doing at the time. Just why aren't they as committed to what they're doing? It's not because they're, they don't care or because they aren't capable. It's because it's difficult. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's why it's really hard to do. So 
So when I went to see Porgy and Bess this, a few weeks ago, and I sat in the Richard Rogers Theater, where I did Sideshow with Norm Lewis, and he's up there on stage with Audrey McDonald, and they're singing these duets from Porgy and Bess, I'm inside my heart. is It's swelling, and I feel so much emotion of gratitude and love because I'm thinking to myself, this is musical theater. This is musical theater. This is um, inc- an incredible score, uh, an incredible piece, and the people up there are professionals. I mean, they, Audra and Norm, well, yeah. they are, they are, you might as well consider them to be the highest paid athletes on best team, you know, on a football team. And they are, you know, amateurs need not apply. Please. Amateurs need not apply. I mean, you better know what you're doing when you get up there because you have to serve the peace, and they do. I mean, it was incredible. So there's an example of my favorite kind of musical theater with people who have voices that are just so incredible that you're never distracted by anything, anything and negative. It's just the whole thing is like a rush of beauty. So I take it you do and not feel... To uh, get to that yeah. point, it takes a while. You know, you can't be in college and give that kind of a performance. There's no way. You just you haven't lived enough life. You know, you don't know what it's like. You you can't you can't really imagine, you know, how much is how much time has passed between when that score was written and now. It takes a time, it takes a while to absorb that. How much life has passed and how much things have ch- how many things have changed since then. But well, I guess what I'm getting around to is Stanislavski is the one that said the stage is a tightrope. Mm-hmm. in his book An Actor Prepares and he, he meant it literally if you don't know if you are not a professional you will fall if you don't care that's fine but just know everybody's going to watch you fall so I I feel like musical theater is, is of the fine arts that I've participated in and I work on canvases I play instruments and I've been in plays and movie and television as well musical theater is the most difficult thing because it's live. You, you don't get to polish it right, well. afterwards. It, it comes out live and that's it. And you do have to embody the lyric and the music and, it, and you have to kind of dance the emotion through your, through your entire body. And, and, you ha- and, and next to normal, what I was required to do was to uh, play a schizophrenic Mm. borderline schizophrenic for two hours and it hard, hardly I really didn't leave the stage for big chunks of time and I just sobbed my eyes out every day so I had mm. to learn how to as a professional I had to learn how to cry sob and sing at the same time which is really kind of actually impossible oh, only, only Bernadette you Peters learn how to do it is by practicing yeah. it Bernadette Peters could do it in Sunday in the Park. She's about the best that I've ever heard manage that. It's tough. Well, she's the one who taught everybody how to do it. Oh, okay. She's the one. She was one of the first emotional singing actresses. Huh. And to me, there is nobody else like her. Agreed. Partly because of that, because I watched her in concert when I was just out of college. And she was just singing in front of a microphone. She wasn't playing a character. And yet, she became the music. Like, she became the emotion of the song with her body and her voice. And, you know, her voice is just so beautiful. And she is 
has such physical beauty. Still. But she became a hero to somebody like me. Well, yeah. I mean, at some point, I'm sure you'll be doing Follies, too. At, at, uh, did you get to see her in Follies, by any chance? I didn't, and I, I'm, I regret that. I regret that I didn't have the chance to. Oh. Actually, a friend invited me, and I couldn't go because I was sick. Oh, okay. So, it was, it was, it was great. Yes. It was. Can I ask, are there roles that you tried out for over the past bunch of years that uh, you didn't get... And that you, you're philosophical about now, but that you, God, you wish you had them? <laughs> yeah, I just was talking about, I did an interview with Augustine Burroughs the other day on Sirius. He has a new show. It, it, it wasn't live, it's going to air later, but I was, um, I was thinking about that, actually. Uh huh. <laughs> While I was there. Um, wait, you have to remind me. Did the. A, a show or a role or a part in uh, in theater or musical theater that um, you tried out for, you didn't get. You oh, feel yeah, I remember now. The story that I was telling was, and I don't usually tell stories like this, but I don't know. It's kind of interesting, I guess. I was up for Thirty Rock. Oh. That show that's on NBC. Mm -hmm. And it was down to the wire for the role that. Jane Krakowski or. Um, two screens. Uh, one in L.A. and one in New York. And I had a lot of things going for me to get it. When I didn't get that role, I was disappointed because I really would like to do television and for other reasons. Well, the, the great thing is, though, um, right after that, I got Next to Normal. Well, sure. I started working on Next to Normal. So if I'd gotten cast in 30 Rock, I wouldn't have my Tony. There you go. Well, that's the, the so, old... The, and I do get yeah. philosophical about that that kind of a thing because that's the kind of thing that you have to do when you're an actor because it's a personal it's personal you know you're not just punching a clock and working the factory although it feels that way it's a personal involvement so sometimes you can take it personally and um, it's good to to just you know improve your skills as much as you can at something like what I just did like you know looking at the silver lining of it and then as, after that happens enough you start to see it, the silver lining, before you get the silver lining. You start to go, oh, I didn't get it, but that means something else is coming. And were there shows that you were trying out for when you were really first starting out on Broadway that you didn't get that even maybe now in retrospect you realize you weren't ready for at that point, even, but you were auditioning for them because, of course, you have to? Um, mm, well, when I got to New York, I, did, did, uh, I went through a lot of auditions. It was a full-time job for sure. three months. And then when I got cast in my first show, it was Tommy, which then came to Broadway. So I kind of think that the trajectory was perfect, actually. And the, the other shows that I had auditioned, that I was auditioning for were not the one that was right for me. The one that was right for me was the show that was going to go to Broadway, because that was the only one that did go to Broadway of all the shows that I auditioned for. They, you know, the ones I was going out for, they were like it was Summerstock and... Uh -huh. um, you know, regional theater and things like that, which... Nothing wrong with that? Um, Not disparaging? Nothing wrong with it at all. As a matter of fact, the arena stage in D.C. is the, the commitment that Molly Smith, she runs the arena stage, the commitment that she has to, to uh, the bigger picture of improving the cultural landscape of D.C. and of America, basically, mm -hmm. Her commitment to our project next to normal is the reason why it, one of the ah. reasons why it succeeded. 
so you're still because because Peter Marks, the reader for the Post, gave us an incredible. He, he gave us so much incredible support. But we we did next to normal off Broadway, and then and then we took it out of town and did it at the arena, and that's when it got became the show that actually worked. And then we took it to Broadway. So that's my salute to regional theaters. No, are you the I, regional theater actually has has mm-hmm. um, space has intellectual, creative, and physical space to, to do something like that. Time and space to, to say, let's pull up our, 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 our shirt sleeves and work on this and, and make it work. And that's exactly what they did, because when we did an external off-Broadway, it, it didn't work. Oh. It just, it, was a, it just needed to be adjusted. Hmm. And then it worked. So, you know, I, I would love to go back to the arena, and I, I wouldn't mind working at a regional theater again. It's just that... In New York, you have to live in New York when you do this, when you're on stage, because that's where all the jobs, most of the jobs are there. True. In New York. And I also tell students that um, if you want to be an actor, you better learn how to be a musical theater actor, too, because most of the jobs are, are there. Most of the jobs are in musical theater, and they pay they pay better than, than plays. Well, do they realize, isn't so it the same scale? do it. It's also really good to learn how to do it because, mm-hmm. as I said, it's the most difficult combination of of uh, magic tricks to pull off and then create that, that illusion of a character, like what Audra and Norm were doing. That I didn't even, I forgot that she was singing, which is hard to imagine with her voice, but she was just so one, she was so, uh, she, she just embodied the lyric in a way that, and the sound of her voice is so flawless that you're never distracted by it. So you, you just start to think, you start to forget that she's singing and you're just, you're just hearing the soul of the lyric. And to me, that's ideal. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be, Glenn Close did the same thing with Sunset Boulevard and she doesn't have the same voice as Audra. Right, but she can and act the hell out of it, yeah. Her acting was so wonderful that, and again, she was so, she was so fully embodying the lyric and the music that you you, you forgot that she was singing. Yeah. Same thing, different voice, but you, you know, you were just, in, you were, I was, when I watched her, when I went to LA and watched the show before it came to Broadway, I was so pulled into the performance and it was I was it was I was being pulled into the lyric and the musical, the the waves of music around me, and it was Glenn that was, and, and then when I saw Audra, it was Audra that was that was getting that across. And and the only way that they can do that is because they're they're professionals, and it's magic trick. While I was playing Diana, mm-hmm. people were convinced that I was her. People were convinced that I was a bipolar schizophrenic. <laughs> Believe me, you don't want people thinking that you are one when you're not. Well, when no, I played Violet Hilton. Everybody was convinced I was a that I was that I was Emily Skinner. People used to call me Emily. She played my twin. Right. People yeah. thought I was Emily. As a matter of fact, one time I was in Sam's restaurant over here on 46th Street. I don't think it's there anymore. No, I they closed there, it. Yeah. Like you're Emily Skinner, aren't you? No, you're Emily Skinner. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yes, you are. And the reason why they thought I was her is because we played twins. We played Siamese twins. You know, people. It's 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 compliment, I guess, because they believe the illusion. Right. Right. Well, it, it's, yeah. I don't think people really believed you were a Siamese twin. Although, you, if you check the internet and stuff, there were people who thought you were a little goofy and 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 
batty um, around the time of Next to Normal. Uh, you know, just just uh, I guess that that's part of it, and 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 the way you're convincing in that. In well, that I don't way. know how you could be batty and be a professional who works on Broadway and wins a Tony. I just don't know how you could be batty and and do what we do. You can't. Oh no! There, there are actors who are batshit crazy. Streamlined, uh, silver bullet train. That's that's what these people are. You, you have to be that way because everybody who isn't that way falls to the side. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, if you read the obituaries, and I, I guess actually that does prove your point. Like when uh, Nicole Williamson. Were the news of his death came around, and you start thinking, well, he was an amazing actor, but also he alienated everyone, and uh, as great as it could be, it basically tor- you know, torpedoed his career just because he was nuts, and he couldn't control it, you know? And he, and he was a raving well, alcoholic, but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it takes all kinds, and sometimes an eccentric personality rubs somebody the wrong way, and, you know, there's, there's a, a miscon- something gets misconstrued, but really, we are all people that just want to find love and connection. And through the experience of playing Diana, I found that through the character I found it in myself in a new way, and through the and through the character in the show, I found it in the audience. And even though the audience might not have really known the real me, it didn't matter because the show affected them on such a profound level that I I felt satisfied. Just in that, um, you know, I was doing what I was where I was supposed to be. I was in my dharma, as they said. <laughs> and, and my job was to deliver yeah. the the emotional impact that the show has, and then the show hits the audience and it breaks them open, now, and they're alive yeah. in a new way. Speaking of, at of first, I thought yeah, that sorry. that was just you know a whim at the beginning of our run of Next to Normal, and as as I finished over a thousand shows in a row, I realized that. Um, no, it was universal. Everybody felt this way. Every oh, there was sure. always everybody in the audience. There was going to be some group of group of people in the audience that was going to be affected that way by the show, because the show um, it's it's it impacts your humanity, and it makes you want to uh, connect with other people and maybe reveal things that you haven't revealed before. And it's interesting that it doesn't sound like you've let go of this show yet. I mean, you've done an off-Broadway show since, you've been doing the band, but somehow you you really, it's kind of like, are you still doing or about to do Next to Normal anywhere? Because it, it hasn't left you yet. It's obviously like front well, and center in your honestly, consciousness. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be talking about it if you hadn't brought it up. Oh. Seriously. I mean, if you do bring it up, you, you started the interview by playing the track. Well, sure. I, you know, I, I, I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about it because... I think that people can really learn from my experience because I did. Because yeah, I was going to play touch but, a touch um, a touch of me anyway, you know, and, and we could have talked about the nudity and Rocky Horror, but I felt ah, let me go with the the Tony Winning song instead, you know. <laughs> well, she is. St- I am still recovering from having that kind of physical trauma in my body, which is mm. what it was to go through her. So I am still like, because when I came off the road, I went right into a movie the next day, and the very next day after that, oh. I went filming a pilot. And uh, uh, so now I'm finally going. Oh, I can take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I can go for a week without crying. That kind of thing. Wow. Shoot, I think that I have to hang up because I'm actually in someone's office, and I, I think they're they're getting ready to leave. Oh well, um, yeah, it's it's 11:57 here. I, I, first of all, I want to thank you for being here in the neighborhood. And I'm, I'm one, I have one last question for you because not to get too personal, but since it's about you, um, no kids. 
Is that a, a choice, a, a thing that may still happen, that won't happen, hasn't happened? Kind of curious. For what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first oh, part. The, the, the fact that um, raising kids is is not in your... Will that ever happen, or is there a re- reason, you know, you don't, you may not have a, a family per se, as it were? Well, sorry to throw... answer that takes a while. Oh. The answer takes a while. But the brief, the brief uh, answer would be, I decided to put off having kids because I re- I decided that a mother is a full-time job and an act acting is a full-time job. See, some people look at their kids and they say, you can go into acting, but you have to have something to back you up. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is ridiculous and offensive because acting is a legitimate field. If somebody goes into law school, you don't go, you need something to back that up. And yet there's no proof, that, there's no guarantee that you're going to pass the bar. There's mm-hmm. no guarantee that you're ever going to get a, a client. So, see what I mean? Yeah, you might as well do what you love. to a professional. Uh-huh. You hear people say you need someone to back you up. Because when you're a kid, nobody's a professional. We're all starting out. When you're a kid, you need support. So, um, anyway, I decided that acting was a full-time job and that motherhood was a full-time job. And so the answer to your question is, you know, you can only have one full-time job. Fair enough. But, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and it's tough. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Actually, that's something that I would think would be wonderful if I if I had a kid in this next part of my life. Ooh. But I don't think that that's something that's really up to me. Um, <laughs> I, well, I, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's up to the grocer on the street. I, I, I kind of is up to you. Well, I mean, you know, it's a natural process, isn't it? So it's not. I'm not. I'm not the only one who has a say. Oh well, of course. How it turns out. Well, you know, or as I say, give the drummer some. Then no, I'm kidding. But we have been talking with Alice Ripley, the wonderful and uh, delightful and so smart and and charming actress from Next to Normal, from bunches of. I, I didn't even get to ask about James Joyce's The Dead, which, um, of all things, was a, a very good musical that you would never think would have been a musical. And Les Mis and Rocky Horror. Congratulations on the music, on the theater, on the Tony, of course. Best of all, what's your next project? And then, and then I'll let you go. Well, thank you so much for having me today, and I've really enjoyed this chat. And I just want to end by reminding everybody that my next thing is Tuesday. Oh. Tuesday is the release of my song. And this is like, this is my child, okay? I'll say it. It sounds cliche, <laughs> but that's what it is. I had a baby. I made this song all by myself. What do you think? It's only a dollar. And it's a single. Because in these economic times, that's the way you do it in the music business. You don't really... It's not smart to make albums anymore. Well... Make a single. Because if you buy a whole album, you might not like everything on it. You bought it for the one song, but you know it might not like everything else. So, you know, this way you can just buy one track if you want to. If, if there are other ways that you can find it online too, it's also going to be on Bandcamp, which is a site that you can. We're going to have the the listener price, so you can even pay more for it than a dollar if you wanted to. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, I'm I'm really excited about it because uh, because of what I've said already, and there's a video that's that's made too that's going to be released. So I hope that everybody goes there and enjoys it, and lets me know what they think, because it's really easy to find me online on Twitter on Facebook. Like you said, my YouTube channel. Right. Twitter is actually the easiest, the easiest way to connect to the audience, and I adore the audience. So I do hope that they give, they give me feedback about the song after they hear it. Well, everybody. And my will... Twitter name is Ripley the Band. Ripley the Band. 
is Alice Ripley's Twitter name, and we are going to get to hear her brand new song. Well, it's released on Tuesday, so you can't hear it. This is the only place, actually, you can hear it for the next couple of days, and then you can go and buy it. Um, it's called Beautiful Eyes, and thank you so much to the beautiful eyes and soul and mind and spirit of Alice Ripley for being thank with us. Thank you so much, Dave, for everything. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. 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 I tried to reach you on the Chinese telephone, but when no one answered, I took a train downtown. Sketchy circumstances under the ground. Where did you get those beautiful eyes? If I'm a runner-up or do I still get a prize? Cause I'm doggone tired of all of your lies So why can't I sleep on a subway? I got your message but I like you anyway I hope you're coming and I wish you'd go away You said you liked China, that you would stay Is fat and she knows where it's at. She put a quarter in and played another song. We sat and listened to him loving you was wrong. Then she made me promise that I would go all the way home. I don't like you out like this on your own. I still get a prize Cause I'm doggone tired Of all of your lies So why can't I I sleep on a subway You caught a boat to China Leaving me alone I tried to reach you On the Chinese telephone But when no one answered I took a train
A new single from Alice Ripley. Beautiful eyes there. Actually, I think it's... I'm not sure if it's just Alice Ripley or the band Ripley, but either way, very catchy number there, and that will be available on Tuesday. And again, to find out more, go to Alice Ripley's Facebook or check out her Twitter and thank her so much for being in the neighborhood. What wonderful guests that we've had so far on this episode. Our 376th 376. Sorry, I couldn't get that out of my lips there. 376th episode of the program. We've been on the air since, well, October of 2002 for many years in New York. And now coming to you from the University of Northern Colorado on uncradio.com. And also, if you are students here, you can also hear this station streaming 24-7 on Channel 3 on your dorm room TVs. Well... We still have more show to go. In this coming hour, I'll be talking to my dad, Philip Lefkowitz, uh, in honor of his upcoming 75th birthday, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, and also Rabbi Saul Solomon will be stopping in because he has his show. He's going to be doing Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon in New York for a week during um, spring break time here at UNC. And you can go see him at the Richmond Shepherd Theater on East 26th Street. He'll be doing five performances from March 13th through the 17th, most of them matinees. So, you know, if you're in New York and uh, you've got all these other shows and things to do at night and dinners and things, well, it's fine. Right smack in the middle of the afternoon. You can go see Rabbi Sal Solomon and get Judaized, as it were. He'll tell you more about it when he comes in just uh, about half an hour or so from now. But before we get to that, as promised, as we usually do, we do our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment where we play a bunch or a handful of Bob Dylan songs just because he is Dylan. And usually we're playing his own music, his own songs, him singing from the very beginning of his career right through the, the big famous years to even the most recent stuff and the bootlegs. But figured we'd do something special today just because we're lucky enough to have Judy Collins on the show earlier in the program. And she's done bunches of Bob Dylan cover versions all throughout her career. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to span her career and pluck a couple of her Bob Dylan covers from all different times in the career. This is one of her best-known Dylan covers. It's from her album, Who Knows Where the Time Goes, and it's her version of Bob Dylan's Poor Immigrant. Always left alone 
in trouble, please don't put me down or get upset. I am not pleading or saying I can't forget. I do not walk the floor, bow down and bend, but yet, Daddy, you're just on my Even though my mind is hazy and my thoughts they might be narrow, where you've been, don't bother me or bring me down in sorrow. It don't even matter to me where you're waking up tomorrow, Daddy. You're just on my mind. Just breathing to myself, pretending not that I don't know, Daddy. You've been on my mind. When you wake up in the morning, baby, look inside your mirror. You know I won't be next to you. You know. Be curious to know if you can see yourself as clear as someone who has had you on her mind. Very nice version of、uh, "Daddy, You've Been on My Mind," a Bob Dylan song covered, probably best known covered by Joan Baez. But of course, that is Judy Collins' version of a song that Dylan wrote as "Mama, You've Been on My Mind." Of course, the gender change—they change the、uh, the sex of the subject, but it's still a really nice tune. That's Judy Collins going back to her fifth album, which was called "Fifth Album," and also in that Judy Collins set. We heard tomorrow is a long time. Another Bob Dylan version because we've been doing Bob Dylan sooner and later. Bob Dylan cover versions by Judy Collins, who was our guest earlier in the program. And so in that set, which by the way, when I forget what I played in the set, I go to our MySpace page, and so can you, and that'll tell you.、Um, Basically, all the songs that we play during the show, and we keep it updated every like fifteen twenty minutes. So if you don't want to wait for our archives to kick in at Dave'sGoneby.com, or if I get forget to back announce, then you can know that we played Judy Collins doing "Pity the Poor Immigrant" from Who Knows Where the Time Goes, followed by "Tomorrow Is a Long Time, Just Like a Woman." Now that was from. The album that she did—that was all. What was it? Dylan and Beatles covers, or,、um, or was it just Dylan? I think it's. Oh, it's just Dylan. Her album was called "Just Like a Woman." So we heard the title track of that. We also heard a lovely version of "Dark Eyes" from that record, and capping the Bob Dylan sooner and later set. Daddy, you've been on my mind. 
all of that from Judy Collins capping our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later set here on Dave's Gone By, coming to you from the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado, which means it's time to give a check of the weather to let you know how things are out there today and for the rest of the week. It's a chilly day. It's just barely going to climb in up to about 40 degrees, but mostly sunny, kind of cloudy, and the next couple of days are going to be virtually the same. Little more clouds than sun, but still not seeing much in the way of precipitation, thank goodness. Going into the mid-teens at night, that's today, tomorrow, and Monday, but again, the temperature never really poking up far above like 40 or 42 degrees, but Tuesday starting to look a little bit nicer, because not only are we going to get up to well into the mid-40s on Tuesday and Wednesday, but the lows will be in the 20s rather than the teens. So we'll have just a little bit of warming going on as we move later into the week here in Greeley. So enjoy the cold, but hey, not snowy, not rainy, fine by me weather here in Colorado or wherever you are. Um, Alice Ripley said it was beautiful in New York. Um, you know, where she was talking to us from and where I'm sure a lot of the listeners are. So enjoy that as well. It is 2, excuse me, it is 12.32 in the afternoon here at the University of Northern Colorado. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and you're listening to Dave's Gone By. And yes, we're very excited about Rabbi Saul Solomon. He, of course, is a regular guest on our program. He does his weekly rabbinical reflection where he talks about topics in the news, issues that are happening in society, or sometimes he's just rambling and telling jokes. He's the rabbi. He can do what he wants. Well, what he did back in November was do his one-man show here at UNC. It's called Shalom, Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon. He did it at the Norton Theater just before Thanksgiving, and it went quite well. Well enough, in fact, amazingly enough, that it was time to bring the show in a small way to New York. And so during the spring break here at UNC, Rabbi Saul Solomon will do Shalom, Dammit at the Richmond Shepherd Theater in Manhattan, right on 26th Street near 2nd Avenue. And yeah, he's, we want people to come see it. I'm involved in the show because I helped direct it and did some other stuff with it. So we want, yeah, we want not only, of course, people to come and enjoy and you know pay some money for tickets, but also looking for investors and backers and producers who will take the show to the next level because the rabbi in his deluded and egotistical consciousness feels that it can actually be a commercial off-Broadway or even a Broadway show or go on tour, who knows? One day the rabbi may be playing the, the London Palladium or, or uh, you know, the, the Shea Stadium. Well, it, oh, no, they knocked that place down, didn't they? Is it still there? I don't know. Well, some, some stadium in New York or New Jersey or, or perhaps a parking lot in New York and New Jersey. He's not picky. He just wants to get his message, his voice out there. And so we bring you Rabbi Saul Solomon with his weekly rabbinical reflection inviting you to come to his show on, well, it's between March 13th and March 17th, just about three weeks away. So here, in the neighborhood, enter Rabbi Saul. Theater is fun, there is a role for everyone. You simply stand upon a stage and that is art.
Shalom, damn it! This is Rabbi Saul Solomon with a rabbinical reflection for the week of February 19th, 2012. Alive, alive, oi! Alive, alive, oi! Come see me, I'm acting alive, alive, oi! Remember a few weeks ago, I did my one-man show at the University of Northern Colorado? Of course you don't. Nobody remembers anything anymore. But I'm reminding you, I did a workshop production of my show, Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon in Greeley, Colorado, just to get an idea whether people would tolerate it. Well, not only did most audiences tolerate it, some even endured it, which is why I am bringing my show, Shalom Dammit, to the next step. I'm going to do it off-off-Broadway for a week in March, and I'm inviting you all to come. Shalom Dammit is a one-man, two-person show with comedy, music, and a lot of yelling. It's my sermon on the problems and joys, but mostly problems, of American Jewish life in the 21st century. I teach the audience some words in Hebrew and Yiddish, words like schmuck and tuchus and pastrami. Ah, pastrami. I also talk about world religions in a deeply introspective and insulting way. I delve into the Middle East conflict and come up with my hands dirty, filthy, actually extremely unsanitary, and I touch on such touchy topics as the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, Jews for Jesus, assimilation, alienation, and constipation. As you can see, some content is not suitable for children, or anyone for that matter, but hey, it's New York, so I have to be edgy. My onstage musical director will be Richard Shore, a talented man who actually went to Harvard and got a doctoral degree from Boston University. See, Mom? I don't have to be a Jewish doctor. I got one working for me. And just in case funny songs and intellectual content and comedy aren't enough for you, there's multimedia. I do a PowerPoint. There's improvisation. I answer your stupid questions. And there's love. Because, God damn it, that's what I'm all about. Shalom, damn it. An evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon plays March 13 to 17 at the Richmond Shepherd Theater, a sweet little playhouse at 309 East 29th Street near 2nd Avenue. If you blink, you miss the place. So don't blink. My show plays only one week, starting March 13th, Tuesday at 2, Thursday through Saturday at 2, Wednesday at 7.30. Tickets are only $18. Chai! And if you're in school or old enough to wear dignity pants, you get a $3 student or senior discount. Buy your tickets now at brownpapertickets.com. Go figure. We have a ticket service that sounds like toilet tissue. Brownpapertickets.com. And visit shalomdammit.com for more information about my wonderful show. See it before it gets to Broadway, and the only ones who can afford it are goyish anti-Semites with corporate charge accounts. Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon at the Richmond Shepherd Theater. It's the next best thing to Moshiach. This has been a rabbinical reflection from Rabbi Sal Solomon. Temple Sons of Bitches, an off-off-Broadway star. Yes, thank you, Rabbi Saul Solomon. Go see him in New York in just a couple of weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, 
It has been an amazing show so far. We're not completely done. You know, we still have a bit more to do. But, um, I mean, think of what we've had on this episode so far. We've had Tony-winning actress Alice Ripley. We've had legendary singer and songwriter Judy Collins. And yet, wait, there's still even more. Because we've got the one, probably the most important guest in my life, to me, for this show, a guy who just happened to, uh, you know, be rather important in my conception, literally, Philip Lefkowitz, my father, who turns 75 years old on February 23rd. Dad is in the neighborhood. Hello, Dad. Happy birthday to you. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. How's it going, Dad? How you doing? Pretty good. Good. What's new? What, what's up with well, you? <laughs> you expect more from the 75-year-old? Well, you know. Can you imagine? I can't believe it. Do you feel 75? Does it feel different from 74? You know? No, it's just a number. Right. Although, you remember Marilyn Monroe, a great line from Some Like It Hot. 25 makes a girl think quarter of a century. Well, yeah. And now you're, you're... what is it? You're three, not three, quarters, three quarters of a century. My goodness! I mean, it's it's something to to imagine because um, what was I thinking about? I was thinking of all things about Betty White and Abe Vigoda. Don't know why I was thinking about them, but just just the idea that they are, I think, both in their early nineties, and the very and fact that yeah, still working well, and still alive, still working, Betty of White course. Is. Yeah, and Vigoda was up until very very recently. Maybe he still is, but it's like. The idea that they, they were alive. You're very, very low. Sorry, man. I, I can't really, I'll get a little closer to the mic. That's about all I can do. Um, that they were alive during um, the Great Depression, World War II, uh, you know, the Man on the Moon, Korea stuff. I mean, does that ever strike you as far as what you have lived through being now 75? I, I lost the... I, I didn't hear the question. Well, I'm, I'm just saying, the having lived 75 years, does it ever strike you as rather amazing what you have lived through? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Don't forget, when I was a kid, it was World War II. Uh-huh. And got through that, and then it was Korea and Vietnam and you know, like there's no end to it. And then the Gulf Gulf War, and uh, it seems they always find something to fight about. What do you remember about World War Two? I remember the stars in the uh, in the windows of all the families where they had a kid. Hmm. Uh huh. And of course, a, a gold star kid died in the battle in the war. And every neighborhood had a billboard with the names of the kids serving. Wow. Okay. I mean, you you obviously you were you were a kid yourself. I mean, it wasn't um, wasn't like you were oh, in. Yeah. But that's 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 interesting. I'm, I'm I don't ever remember your your mentioning that. Any other memories of of that era? Well, I remember we had a welcome party mm-hmm. for Uncle Monty and Marvin. 
because mm-hmm. Martin Alexander, he, well, I think I told you the story about Marvin. What? He, was, he wasn't exactly your well-behaved soldier. Well, in those days, anti-Semitism was rampant and overt. Uh-huh. So that the uh, Southern sergeants had no trouble in, hey, Jew boy, hey, you, hey. And this went on and on and on. And they busted his chaps. And I don't know how much you remember about Marvin, but he was a big guy. Yeah. And uh, he finally had it up to here. And he took on the sergeant and beat the hell out of him. And naturally, you know, that got him. What did they do? They put him in a stockade, or what did they do? (laughs) Yeah, they put him in a stockade for, I think he got six months. So you can imagine how how good a job he did on the uh, sergeant. Wow. But I love the end of this story, because uh, in the stockade, there was nothing to do but drill. So they used to drill these guys all day long. And he would practice uh, coming to order, uh, present arms with the rifle. Mm -hmm. And he got so good at it that when he would pop the sling, it sounded like a shot. So now the army is faced with a problem because he does his time. He gets out of the brig. They uh, are ready to send him back. And... Some genius figures out, you know, it might not be a good thing if we sent them back to the same unit. <laughs> so they send them somewhere else. Uh, he gets to his new unit. They look at his record. Oh, a troublemaker. So the first day he's there, they put him on guard duty. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's standing post outside the officer's club. And the first officer comes out, and he presents arms. And he pops the sling, and it sounds like a shot. And the officer's head swivels around like he didn't know what happened. So he goes into the club, comes back out again, and and Marvin does it again. And then goes back into the club. And after that, a parade of officers from inside the officer's club come by one at a time to make him pop the sling in at the salute. Yeah. And after that, he had it made. Oh. He was a, a celebrity for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, things don't always work out the way you think. That that's that is way cool. That's that's uh, oh my god! I I'm, I know you have told that story, but I really don't remember that one at all. So I'm I'm, I'm glad you were telling that one again. Um, and also, by the way. Oops. I don't believe it. Well, let, it let it ring, whoever, whoever it is. Tell them, tell them they should be listening to my show, whoever's calling. You, know? you said it. So, not just coming up on your 75th birthday in a couple of days, but what's happening for you that's huge in uh, the middle of March or late March? Believe it or not, mm-hmm. your mother has put up with me for 50 years. Fifty-five oh years. That's amazing. And for that, she should be awarded a medal. <laughs> Several, quite honestly. <laughs> but 
Wow. So, so are there any plans? What are you? How are you guys going to celebrate? What are you going to do? Well, we're probably going to have a something in the house here. Right. You know, the wheelchair makes it a little difficult to get around where we want to go. Oh, by the way, we found a new kosher restaurant here. No kidding. Yeah. No. By the way, I should... And yeah. Mom brought home a uh, a uh, sandwich for me mm-hmm. from this place. I think it's A-Hands. Is that the one? Or... No, no, Ahiva. Ahiva. Ahuva. Ahuva, that's it. Ahuva, all right. And... It was delicious. What kind of sandwich? So we'll be going there one of these days. What, what, what kind of sandwich? And in the meantime, I look forward to her bringing home goodies from there again. Yeah. What kind of sandwich? It was a. Uh, uh, it was lamb, I think, on a pita. Ooh, oh, on a pita. Nummy. Yep, that's delish. Oh my goodness, that's, that's Is it in Cedarhurst or is it where you guys are in Hewlett? No, it's in Cedarhurst, I believe. Ah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But but cool. Oh, I'm glad you've got another place to eat. You know, because um, yes, that's <laughs> great. There's any shortage of those, but uh, out in this area. But true. Certainly, always good to have a change of pace. I should have mentioned from. And, uh, yeah, sorry. It's different. Yeah, I should Mid-Eastern, mention Eastern uh, Middle Eastern cuisine. Mm-hmm. And it really the taste. I was shocked was so good. Well, wonderful, because I guess you guys aren't used to eating, like, gyros and... Uh, That's right. Falafels well, we sometimes. I mean, as far as I know, they don't make kosher gyros. Well, that sounds like what some you... Ways, someplace they do. That sounds like what we you had. We haven't seen it yet. What, what, but this is the equivalent. Yeah, exactly. And, wow, delicious. Well, that's that's marvelous. We just gave them a free commercial. Thank you, Dad. Um, <laughs> so let me ask, Dad. So if, if you really, if you want good Middle Eastern food, go to Yeah, right. We'll fill in the blanks. <laughs> they start paying for advertising. That's now I like your thinking. I like that. Can I ask how how you think your life would be different now if you weren't wheelchair bound? Would it be very yeah, well, I, I certainly didn't expect to be in a wheelchair. Right. On the other hand, uh, the alternative, you know, as my <laughs> old professor used to say, uh, halitosis is better than no breath at all. Exactly. That's one of my favorite quotations from him, Louis Warsaw. He should rest in peace. <laughs> he made some statements that have stuck with me through the years, and that's one of them. Words to live by. And it's true. I mean, that you, you can look back with regret, or you can say, hey, look, you know, I'm, thank God I'm, I'm healthy in other ways. And I was thinking it may yeah, not be all that there different. There was a woman in the office, she said to me one day, how could you always be smiling with your problems? And I said to her, this was before, obviously, I retired, mm. and I said to her, could be worse. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a pretty marvelous attitude, and you, you get to live a pretty cool life. I mean, you, you, you have your music, you have the computer, uh, TV, I movies. I have my wife. Right. I have my son. Oh, well, he's an asshole, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you heard that, too. Huh? Oh, every, yeah, everybody knows it. It's, it's an open <laughs> secret. 
However, he doesn't I, hide it very well. <laughs> but before I let you go, I, I want to have a little bit of a, a cool surprise for you. Now you know that I wrote or I write um, columns. I'm a freelance writer, and I do interviews and things like that. And I interview people for Long Island Woman magazine. You know, I do these cover right. stories a couple of times a year. Well, guess who I got to interview? It hasn't been published yet. I haven't even finished writing it up yet. But guess who I got to talk to just about two weeks ago? Weeks ago? Well, know. the timing doesn't uh, enter into it. But I'll give you a, uh, a hint. The initials are L-E. Oh, L? Yeah, L-E. L-E. Famous actress. Huh? Famous actress. No. Oh, yeah. Wha- was on Dynasty. Linda? Uh-huh. Else, else, um, yeah, L-E. Right. Oh, the love of my life. The other love of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love that correction right there. <laughs> the love of my... No, well, the other love. The other one. The uh, Yeah. <laughs> Not mom. Yeah. But Linda Evans. You're trying to get me killed is what you're doing. <laughs> well, the, well, yeah, I actually got to talk to Linda Evans. I, I had to interview her. She has a book out. And so... Um, yes. Yes, that's right. So she was I on... heard about that. Big Valley. Yeah. Or having a book out. So was she your first major crush? Uh, well, of course, there was Flossie. Flossie being? Huh? Flossie being? My teddy bear. Ah, of course. When I'd be little. Uh huh. <laughs> and after that came Barbara Britton. Oh, okay. I loved her. Oh, okay. What a sweet lady. She should rest in peace, too. And uh, then I had this whole list. (laughs) (laughs) Linda Evans, Linda Carter. (laughs) Yeah, well, most heterosexual (laughs) men. Your mother's on here somewhere. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Like I said, you're going to talk to me. Talk me into the grave here. <laughs> it's okay. My, my list is the size of an encyclopedia, so there you go. But Oh, you too? As a special treat for you, Dad. Um, yes. Because I did talk to Linda Evans. I, you know, I, did, I did interview her, and I taped the interview. So I want you to listen. Wow. I want you to listen closely because... Wait, i got to get this up here. All right, so I hope you can hear this because I know it, it's, it's a little... Just barely. All right, hold, hold, see if you can hear... Linda Evans. Hi, Philip. It's Linda Evans, and I want to wish you a happy, happy birthday. 75. Well, I'm 69, and I'm catching up with you. Have a great birthday. Well, Dad? I love it. I love it. That is the greatest. (laughs) Happy birthday, Dad. I don't know if I can get Barbara Britton. Can I get a kiss to go with it? (laughs) Well... Uh, she is single now, so possibly. Uh, you know. oh, Ma- is that mom walking in the door? Whoops. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> well, Dad happy. Put me up to it. Happy birthday to you, Dad. Have, well, in a couple of days. It's not. It's not the day yet, but soon. 
Very, very happy birthday to you. And, and of course, Thank Mazel you. Tov to you and Mom on the 50th anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks as well. So, and um, one of my biggest joys is having you guys around. Well, thanks. Well, you know, just hoping that you'll stay around for another uh, 30, 40 years. That'd be okay. I think that'd be all right. I'll try. You do. I don't know why you want to cut me short. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's less than 120, wouldn't it be? Um, that's 120 would still be a few, quite a ways away. All right, so make it 50, 60 years. How's that? <laughs> okay. Fair sounds, enough. Sounds good. Well, love you. Love you guys. Love to mom. Same here. And uh, thanks for being in the neighborhood. Happy birthday to you, Dad. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Well, that is um, my dad, Philip Lefkowitz, on Dave's Gone By. What a great way to uh, to end the show here on this February 18th, 2012. And what a show it has been. you got to do some thank yous, of course, to all the wonderful people who were both on the show and who helped make the show possible. Now, where's my thank you list? Where's my thank you page? Here it is. We've got... Uh, Big thank you to Molly at O&M for helping line up the wonderful Alice Ripley. Please go check out her new single, Beautiful Eyes. All you got to do is go find it on Tuesday. It hasn't been released yet on um, either her Facebook page or I, you can download it at various places. And check out her Twitter page as well for the band Ripley. Alice Ripley, so great to have her in the neighborhood. want to also thank Catherine DePaul at Wildflower Records. That's the record label that Judy Collins is on. Her new album is called uh, Bohemian. We play Cactus Tree from it, which is just a beautiful, beautiful track. It's a really nice album, so check that out. Also, <clears throat> Colorado people, go see Judy Collins. She's playing in Telluride, and she was just in Vail, and she's coming to the Boulder Theater on February 25th. I think that's next Saturday or uh, or Sunday. So thank you so much to Catherine DePaul of the Record Company and to Judy Collins for uh, making her way, skiing her way into the neighborhood. Thank you to my dad. Happy birthday, Philip Lefkowitz, the big number 75. Thank you to Rabbi Saul Solomon. Everybody go see his show, Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon if you're in New York during spring break. He's doing the, the show March 13th through the 17th at the Richmond Shepherd Theater on East 26th Street. For more information, please visit shalomdammit.com, shalomdammit.com. And also you can buy tickets and, and find the information on brownpapertickets.com. Thank you to my lovely and darling and adorable wife, Joyce Weil, and to Sam Wood, the general manager of this fine radio station, UNC Radio. Ooh, and I haven't had a chance to thank all the wonderful friends of this program, including Jim Caruso. He's uh, helped me get some guests on the program. He was also a guest here a few weeks back. Every Monday night, he hosts town... Um, no, excuse me, he hosts... Jim Caruso's cast party at Birdland, except on February 23rd, my dad's birthday, he's going to do a special Jim Caruso's cast party at Town Hall, right on uh, West 43rd Street. I, th I think it's 43rd. 
Uh, you'll have to look that one up, but it's a benefit for the Actors Fund, and among the people who will be participating will be Linda Lavin and Frank Wildhorn, who were also both guests at one point on Dave's Gong By. In uh, March, go see Gary Lucas at the Iridium Club, 1615, uh, excuse me, 1650 Broadway. He'll be playing a solo acoustic and electric set at Iridium Gary Lucas. Want to let you know that uh, Carrie Hoffman is still doing My Sinatra, which is at Sophia's on West 46th Street. Christine Petty is doing both musical and mu- musical, sorry, musical, which is sort of a uh, a current events political version of Forbidden Broadway. She's doing that as well as Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage. So check her out in both of those off-Broadway shows. Everybody subscribe to drdemento.com to hear brand new Dr. Demento episodes every single week. And visit Alan Shurstool's column, Studies in Crap, which he writes every week for San Francisco Weekly. Just find him online, Studies in Crap. Well... It just remains for me to say that it is one o'clock in the afternoon here at UNC. You are listening. <clears throat> excuse me. You are listening to UNC Radio on uncradio.com. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. The show is Dave's Gone By. You can hear previous episodes of our show going to davesgoneby.com. They're absolutely free. If you uh, left click. It'll stream on your computer. If you right-click, you can download to your iPod or to your hard drive. And literally hundreds of shows going all the way back to our very first one. Out of the 376 programs that we have so far done of Dave's Gone By, something like 370 have been saved in one form or another, most of them in good audio condition. There are a few that have some audio glitches and problems. It's just the nature of the beast. But most of them sound really good, and they're free and fun to listen to. Go to davesgongby.com to hear them. And uh, this episode, if you, if you want to tell people, oh my God, you missed Judy Collins, you missed Alice Ripley, they were on Dave's Gone By this Saturday. Wait a day or two, we're going to pop the show up online for you, and uh, you can hear it again and share it with your friends and families, etc. and so forth. If you want to write to me, the address is, sh- uh, excuse me, is Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. That's a great way to wait to uh, make requests or to let me know what you thought of the show or to get on our mailing list so that you know in advance what guests we'll be having and what we'll be doing on the program. As a matter of fact, next week, February 25th, our guest is going to be playwright and actor John Grady. He's got a show coming to uh, Off-Off-Broadway, I think, as part of a Fringe Festival there. It's called Fear Factor, the Canine Edition. Should be a lot of fun. So we're going to be talking to John Grady, the author and star of Fear Factor, on February 25th. Um, and I, yeah, I think that about... Wow, that really does about do it. So let's see, how shall we go out? I've played a bunch of uh, Judy Collins. Maybe we'll go out with some more Alice Ripley, uh, just so she doesn't get short shrift here. This is a song from the uh, failed Broadway musical Rags that had uh, apparently some good stuff in it. And this is from the duets album that Alice Ripley did with her sideshow co-star, Emily Skinner. Um, the 
album was called Duets. The song was called If We Never Meet Again. Except, of course, we will be, God willing, meeting again just seven days from now. Saturday, February 25th, 10 in the morning, until 1 in the afternoon on UNC Radio with Dave's Gong By. And so it remains for me to say, thanks for listening. Everybody tell people, you know, get the word out about this show and the amazing guests that we're having. Tell people about Dave's Gone By. And of course, if you know people in New York, let them know that in March, Rabbi, Solom- Rabbi Saul Solomon will be doing Shalom Dammit in New York. So have a great week, have some good times, and gone by. Soon we'll be there where it's so fine to live. What if we never meet again? You'll have your life And I'll have mine to live But if we never meet again Thank you for being my friend for a while Helping me smile when the seas were too rough for me You know I wish only good things for you Dresses and dances And boys with gold rings for you Everything sweet If we never meet again Don't let's be sad Don't shed a tear today you want finally here today so if we never meet again you'll have your Nathan to shield you from harm safe on your farm in the middle of Orchard Street David in school babies to pester you curtains and Shalom, UNC students! If you are going to New York during spring break, come see me, Rabbi Sal Solomon, in my live show, Shalom Dammit, at the Richmond Shepherd Theater. You've heard me on Dave's Gone By. Now I shall apply my outrageous wit and wisdom to the Middle East, Christianity, the Holocaust, and other hilarious topics. Musical director Richard Shore will be on piano. I'll be on painkillers. See Shalom Dammit, March 13 to 17 in New York. For reservations and information, visit ShalomDammit.com. Three dollar discount for UNC students at shalomdammit.com.